This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Dasha, and Dasha was raised by a narcissistic father who was emotionally enmeshed with his caretaking sister. It's a story of mixed messages, emotional invalidation, the cult of family, gossip as currency, depression, stonewalling, and creating autonomy. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Dasha. How are you? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. And today, we're going to hear your story. This story is about your family, about your narcissistic father, but it is also about the cult of family and uh, a lot of it has to do with your aunt and the enmeshment or emotional incest that occurs between your father and your aunt and how uh, it really affects the rest of the family and everything seems to be like an offshoot of that, even though the main story is about you, uh, of course, and, and what you're dealing with. Um, that dictates a lot to do with everything, even though it's behind the scenes and we might not talk about um, a lot of it. It'll just be mentioned throughout the episode. So it's it's really interesting as far as how your family works and how your dad is being, uh, the caretaking that goes into uh, your dad or and how the women in the family are, are the caretakers for him and he's this godfather-like figure in a way. In, in, in that aspect. So a really big thank you for, for being here and sharing your story. There's a lot, everyone. This was, you sent me a lot of stuff. Um, there were 32 pages you sent me in to get it down here. This is our second time recording to get into the form for everyone to hear. Uh, it took a little bit of time and I just want to thank you for helping me in that process to, to do this. It's not always easy to get a story that's so long into, into such a short amount of time. So uh, a big thank you there, uh, Dasha, for doing that. And as well, everyone, there's a couple of trigger warnings in this episode. There's su- suicidal ideation discussion in this episode. There's animal, animal abuse discussion in this episode. So a big trigger warning for everyone there. And with that being said... 
Without further ado, Dasha, the floor is now yours. I think why I'm telling the story um, is that it it just feels like something I can't really come out from under fully because so much of my childhood and my development has been affected by how I was raised and the family I was in. And I am now at 30 um, realizing all the ways relationally that I have to make up for lost time and have to figure things out myself. And it's a can be a very embarrassing and shameful process. And I don't think it should be. I'm trying my best. Everybody's trying their best. But I just recently moved out of my dad's house. And it seemed like a good opportunity to finally talk about what I experienced without being um, literally and figuratively under his thumb. And it's also just opened my eyes to all the things that are difficult for me that might not be difficult for people who were raised in um, more typical families. And it's both the most important work in my life, but it's also the hardest stuff. And it's the stuff that makes me the angriest and the saddest. And so it's a lot to work through, but I think I want to talk about I really want to talk about the levels of emotional abuse and neglect that I experienced so that maybe people listening can relate to it and that they won't feel alone or like their treatment isn't so bad, they, that it's not bad enough to talk about because I can, I'm pretty sure it is. I also think it's important to talk about my mom because having grown up without her for the most part it has confused my development as a woman in the world forever permanently so that's a hard thing to talk about there aren't that many sort of outlets that I feel like I can look to for support for that we don't really talk about bad mothers. We don't talk about mothers who leave. We don't talk about daughters without mothers very much. And I think it's important to, I don't think that people should feel ashamed of, of talking about what it's like to try to become a woman without your mom there. So your family structure was not a normal family structure. Your, you know, when we originally talked, I said, it sounds like if this was a police station, your dad would be at the top and then you'd have like these lines to different people and, you know, you the underboss and all of these things and every character went in a line. So with that image for everyone of that being maybe the structure of your family, I guess first explain how your dad became your dad and, and maybe who your grandfather uh, was in this situation and uh, go from there. So what I know about my grandfather, he passed away when I was 12 or 13. He wasn't a very talkative person, so I don't really know that much about him. 
it's mostly through what my father has told me about him. I know growing up, they experienced a very severe trauma of losing um, my eldest uncle. So my grandfather's oldest son, long before I was alive. But the way that the family coped with that, I think, was to just keep their heads down, keep moving forward, not talk about it, not face it. I, to this day, don't actually really know what happened to him. I don't think that I ever will. Um, It's just not something that my family does. They don't dwell on things, even, even the things that should probably be explored. And so my grandfather, from what I've heard from my dad, kind of pit my dad and my other uncle, Jerry, against each other as best as he could to get them to compete with each other to become the number one man or the best kind of second in line. And my uncle Jerry, although he's in the family business as well, he doesn't really strike me as someone who cares all that much about any of it. He's a very fun, loving, sociable guy. And he makes his money how he makes it. And he kind of enjoys his life. Whereas my dad, that is his life. He takes it incredibly seriously. He has, since he was very young, tried very hard to impress my grandfather with being the hardest working, with being the most serious, with agreeing with everything my grandfather says, not putting up a fight, or as he would label it, being disrespectful, which really to my dad just means disagreeing. There's also uh, my Aunt Luna, who is the youngest, who is closest in age to, to my dad. And they grew up as two peas in a pod because my Uncle Jerry is about a decade older than both of them. So that family dynamic where Aunt Lena and my dad became really close and Uncle Jerry, who had lost his closest sibling, they all lost a sibling, but his closest in age sibling, it kind of fed this um competitiveness where it was you know these siblings versus these siblings and I think my grandfather being a very stoic very uh, hard-working man you know somebody who was actually self-made I think he sort of encouraged that or maybe didn't discourage it so eventually your grandfather dies and your dad becomes the patriarch of the family. And he becomes doted on by everyone within the family to please him. Does Jerry uh, do the same thing or no? No. Jerry, Jerry works with the family. They're, you know, they own um, real estate development companies and, um, you know, build subdivisions and Jerry kind of had his own projects. And like I said, because he's a little bit older, he had older children. So he kind of had his own life separate from my dad, my aunt, my grandma, but my, my dad, because he took it so seriously, the business after, um, 
my grandfather passed away, they absolutely made him the one who was in charge of, of not only running everything, but making sure everybody else had a job and everybody else was feeding their children and saving, you know, making sure they could save for college and being able to afford living in these McMansions on gigantic properties. And that was all, I think my dad took that on as his responsibility. You know, my aunt Lena receives a paycheck from the business. Her husband receives a paycheck from the business. My dad employs a bunch of his friends. It kind of fell upon my dad to, to continue um, making money for not necessarily his family, meaning myself and my brother, but the entire family, my aunt, my uncle, my cousins, my grandma, um, anybody who needed money, not that he would do it in a generous way or a charitable way, I should say, but he just felt very much in charge of the entire family system. And my grandma and aunt fed that and, and kind of supported him and took on a lot more of the domestic roles for him, grocery shopped for him, you know, did his laundry, uh, paid his bills with his money, but, you know, did all that sort of behind the scenes management stuff. And in front of the family would sing his praises and just kind of celebrated him like he was God's gift to the earth and he could do no wrong. There was nothing he could do that was bad or evil or cruel or, or even he couldn't even make a mistake. Everything was attributed to him being such a fantastic provider and such a powerful, love, loving, caring man. And when it comes to the specific relationship between your dad and his sister, um, this is most likely, this is probably the most important relationship in this whole entire story because it is so enmeshed. It is, I'm not going to use the word, it's, it's not sexual, but these two act like they are technically in a weird way married but they are not married. So it's emotionally incestual and it is a relationship that um, really determines so much within this family. And I didn't realize obviously as a kid or even a teenager that a sibling relationship that was this close was toxic or was dysfunctional in any way. I thought this is just how siblings treat each other. This is how loving siblings take care of each other. This is, they're each other's best friends, but it, it is the most important relationship in my father's life. It has always been. I think he's had other women in his life come in and do things for him and, and give him things that, that my aunt could not, namely children. But they have quickly either fled or been pushed out because there's no room in my father's life for a partner. Um, there's no room for anyone to take on any of the emotional burden of, of being in a relationship with him 
because he does all of that with my aunt. She strokes his ego. She talks with him on the phone 15 times a day. She's the first person he calls in the morning while he's still laying in bed. She's the last person he speaks to. She's the one who organizes his life and he runs everything by, gets validation from. A lot of the things that he talks to her about are just juvenile and silly and very emotionally immature. And she tends to him like it's the most important thing, the most important job she has. And I don't know how they got to that place because I have never seen siblings behave like mother and child, husband and wife, and like best friends. And, and, and sometimes, especially recently, like father and daughter, especially. Um, I've never seen that before. I did grow up thinking that it was the, I, the goal and the ideal sibling relationship, but it, it is not. It's very unhealthy. And I think it's unhealthy for me with my relationship with my father and my relationship with my aunt. For them, it works. It's a, it's something that they have shaped their lives around. It's something they have set everything up um, around so that it's protected. They live on a piece of land that was split in two. They're always going to be in each other's backyards. They're always going to be physically and emotionally close to each other. They've guaranteed that, like you mentioned, there's always, they're always going to be tethered to each other with finances and with working. And there's this a level of involvement in my dad's sort of um, emotional life that created an even worse monster for me at home because I didn't have anybody to listen to me or believe me or validate what I was experiencing. It was all about my dad. And I didn't realize that at the time. So you mentioned your mom and there's two stories here with your mom. There's your mom before she left and then your mom after your, after she left and, you know, safety for you um, becomes a big concern after she's gone. So first explain who your mom is and uh, then explain what happens after your mom leaves because we'll find out that maybe your mom isn't uh, the best person either. My mom, before she left, was my favorite person I could ever dream up. I don't know. I don't think that that's that unusual with mothers and daughters. Um, she just seemed like the most beautiful, the smartest, the strongest, the most important person in any room and the most important person in my life for sure. And I knew that I just had to grow up to become her and I would be okay. There was this sense of, I just have to watch her and observe her and I will become that beautiful and self-assured. And I, I won't be afraid of everything. I was a very anxious kid. Um, I didn't, really express that outwardly but inwardly I was always afraid of of the world and she handled it like it was no big deal and so I figured well that's that's who I'm going to become and I'm so lucky to have this person 
who I get to follow around and, and she gets to teach me how to be so cool, basically. I wasn't really close with my father when I was young, and especially when my mom was around. Uh, he was just kind of a guy who went to work and came home. But with my mom, she was the perfect PTA mom. She was the funniest mom of all my friends' moms. She was the the best neighborhood mom. She, you know, cooked and baked and and did everything domestic that you could think of better than anybody in my family because everything was a competition and she always won. She just kind of came into this big family and brought this sense for me of sort of stillness and calmness. And I think it is funny that I describe her I mean, as an adult now, looking back on it, I describe her as such a cold, um, sometimes mean person. And yet I was obsessed with her. I just wanted to be her. And I think part of that was just me wanting to fit in my family where she was because she was so respected and she was so loved. And I just wanted that. So your mom really has the rest of the family, the cult of this family, uh, enamored by her, at least for a little while. Um, How is your mom uh, treated at home by your dad uh, behind closed doors uh, without the rest of the family there? She's my dad's punching bag. And so my brother and I don't, don't get treated like she does. He, quote unquote, teases her nonstop when it's just the four of us, when it's just our little nuclear family. He sort of rags on her about everything and frames it as humor. And he's just having a good time and he's just blowing off steam. And I, you know, every, every night at dinner, I would watch her become so angry and, and so resentful of him. And neither of them seemed to like each other very much. But she was the one who absorbed all of that. And I both, I think, appreciated that she took that role on, but also really didn't understand what was going on. I just thought, you know, why isn't mom laughing? And I just internalized, I think, that moms are very cold and serious and um, calculating and dads are very fun and childish and, you know, warm. Um but again, I didn't really have a bond with my dad at the time. And um, even my dad, despite how much he shit on her uh, and degraded her and mocked her and belittled her, I think wanted me to become like her in, in a lot of ways. Beautiful and controlling and controllable and um, intelligent. And independent. So eventually your mom um, ends up leaving the family. What happened there and what happened with your relationship with your mom after she left? So my mom left when I was around 10. And it was it wasn't something that I didn't anticipate. Like I said, my parents really seemed to hate each other. But I really never thought that anything like that would happen. Uh, We grew up in an upper middle-class family uh, with this big, seemingly loving family. And I I never thought that 
anybody would want to leave it. And I certainly never thought that my mom would be the one who was leaving it. Um, after she left, she didn't move very far away. She moved about three miles away. She moved into another house that my dad built. He gave her that house outright. Um, and he kept us in return. So it was kind of a transactional thing. Uh, at least that's how I view it. Um, because she didn't fight him for our house, our childhood home. She didn't want to stay there, especially not with my aunt in the backyard and, you know, on streets that my father had named, built and named after other important women in his life. She didn't want to be in that house. And she didn't want primary custody of my brother and I. She wanted out. She became... At, at the time, I think I would have described it as a shell of her former self, but now I can kind of see that was actually who she, she, she kind of came out of her shell. Um, she was very unhappy with my father and with my family, and she was very unhappy as a mother. She finally got a little bit more freedom. She got to drink and smoke and date. I had to meet more of her boyfriends than I can remember. She wanted to live a life that was very different from the one that I had watched her live with me, where she was, she had the perfect highlights in her hair and the expensive clothes and the jewelry. She wanted to live on a boat and kind of be a little, you know, drinking a beer and all that. And I, it, I just didn't recognize her. She physically became a lot more frail and a lot smaller and a lot more frazzled. I didn't like that. Her energy was no longer sort of harsh and cold. It was, she just didn't care about me, but she was acting like a teenager. Like she was, you know, taking digs at me and making me the butt of the joke and, and being very sort of bouncing off the walls. And I, I just didn't recognize her at all. And that was a really hard, hard thing for me to witness. And I, I remember begging anybody, any other adult, my mom's mom, Nana, um, my, my aunt Lena, my grandma, my dad, any adult that would listen. I remember explaining to them, something's wrong with mom. Like, some, like she's not who she was and I don't know who she is and I don't know what's going on. Can somebody help her? Somebody's got to help her. Somebody's got to help me, I think is what I was trying to say, but somebody's got to help her because she, she's out of control and she's mean to me and she doesn't care about me. And she no longer, you know, is taking an active role in my life. And I was trying to express that in the best way I could with my mom. It just kind of came out as anger and yelling and with, with my dad's side of the family, it just kind of came out as, well, that's your mother. And, and they kind of all just kind of shrugged their shoulders and thought, yeah, well, she's crazy. I mean, that's why she left your father. They kind of all were just, it was validating for them to hear that, that she was deteriorating. So here's a moment where your mom has left the home. She is not herself. Uh, the biggest thing here is that your mom has given custody to your dad. And all of a sudden, the person that you felt safest with in the other home is no longer the same person. You feel like they have given you away. So you're sitting here now lonely 
very confused, mixed messages about love, family. It's being reinforced here that we're your family. We took you in. This other person, other people can't be trusted. This part of the family, our blood can be trusted. So that's now ingrained at you at a very young age. You have a visual, something that's tangible to grab onto to be like, yeah, I see it and I can feel it. This exists. So now you're in within this home. I guess this is a point of your life where the weight of the world starts to be put on you. Expectations start to be put on you. So with your mom out of the picture and your dad really here to do what he wants, how does he start to systematically um, break you down as far as expectations and your emotions, your feelings, and who you are and how you are supposed to act as a child inside that home? Not just for you as a child, but how you're supposed to serve him. I think that's exactly it. It became clear to me that I was supposed to serve his needs, even though I was his child and I was very young, I was the one who, uh, became the, the punching bag, uh, in part, I think because I was the only woman left and that's my dad's favorite target, but also because I dealt with the rejection of my mom and what I was witnessing in a much more vocal way. I didn't want to, I didn't mean to, I, I knew that being needless was rewarded. That's what my brother always was. But I just couldn't cope in the same way. And I became uh, very sad, deeply, deeply sad. And it would sometimes come out as frustration at my father because he would just tease me to no end. And when I say tease, I, I don't mean in like a, you know, silly, lighthearted way. He would just pick, pick, pick at me. And he would use my quote unquote dramatic response to prove that he was the calm, sane, level-headed adult in the room. And I was just being uh, a very um, needy child and I needed to calm down and I needed to um, relax and I needed to have fun. And it just started, I started to to realize with my mom gone and him being the parent that remained and him being the parent that stayed and that being that was hammered into my head nonstop your father stayed most fathers don't stay your father is a single dad look at what he did for you he's the hero because he's all i had left i internalized that i was the problem in that relationship because I had to be. Otherwise, I couldn't fathom being rejected by him or rejecting him myself. I needed him. He was the only parent I had left. He was the only one who cared if I was alive. He didn't really care much beyond that, but he he was the one sending me to school every day. And it, it felt like I, I just needed to figure out how to get him to love me and how everybody else seemed to be okay with him and kind of take everything in stride. And, and I just couldn't, I can realize now it was because I was experiencing a side of him that nobody else really was. I was his favorite, um, 
scapegoat. I was the, the one who got it the worst because I had the strongest, I think, emotional attachment to my mom and the, the biggest struggle with her leaving. And he took that out on me. And I took that as I need to figure out how to get this guy to, to love me. And I need to figure out how to become this guy because everybody loves him too. And look at how the family has rallied around him. Look at how much of a hero he is and how much of a coward my mom is. I can't believe I ever wanted to be like her. And I need him to show me how not to be like her. I was deeply afraid of uh, my genetics at that time. Like I was just going to wake up one day and be my mom and make the choices she made. And, and I didn't and like, I wouldn't be able to control that or stop that. It's it, I expressed that to him probably dozens of times, hundreds of times, maybe that I was so afraid of growing up to be my mom. And he loved that. And in turn, the only other person I could think of to grow up to become was my dad because he was the most charismatic, the most handsome, the most well-liked, well-respected man in the room. And he was like a magnet. And I, I, need, I, I was so desperate for love at that time because I wasn't getting any from either parent that I just, I, I would have done anything to have people love me the way that they seemed to love my dad the way that I get along in this family is just to, to keep myself small and quiet and safe and to do what my, the one thing that my, that it seems like my father approves of, which is to be a really great student, which my brother and I both always were. Um, and we, I just kept pushing myself in school. I, I didn't develop any sort of like hobbies or interests outside of school because I, I couldn't manage those. I, I didn't have the capacity to kind of structure my life around anything but getting good grades and surviving my family. And nobody, it seemed, could help me with any of that weight of, I'm, I'm so deeply sad. I am so deeply scared nobody can help me with it. So I will just have to deal with it myself. And I think too, having two emotionally underdeveloped parents, neither of them, I don't had the capacity or maybe even noticed that I was not doing well, that I was um, struggling and young and needed help. They, like I said, my father's needs reign supreme as a lot of narcissists do. And so even as a child, my emotional needs were not as important as his. And I was blamed and shamed for having any sort of emotional needs. So one thing you did mention in there was schooling and education, expectations of everything of you in every single way. It just starts to really become a weight and eventually, you know, you and your brother have different relationship. And I think this is a good time to uh, introduce your brother in a way because you become the scapegoat and your brother becomes the golden child of this family. So take us through who your brother is 
and then uh, I guess the relationship between you, your brother, and the family dynamics surrounding it all. So my brother and I are really close in age, less than a year apart. Um, I, I think, I mean, he, he was not planned with, for my parents. Um, but he did a lot of heavy lifting, I think for my mom emotionally. Um, he was just the sweetest baby or so they describe him and had, had, did not cry, did not fight, was not a little, you know, stubborn toddler, had no terrible twos and just, you know, loved, loved and has loved my mom the same, um, her whole life. And my father, um, loves having a son. I think a lot of men like him just love having a son who is, um, that agreeable and that, that easy to, um, manipulate, or I guess just somebody who doesn't have that much of a, a personality, I would say, or, um, a lot of needs. Um, I think I mentioned before he, he, his, that's the best way I would describe him is, is needless. And as a child, that's not healthy to be needless. It's not normal to be needless, but he was left alone and rewarded when he didn't show my parents that he was struggling in any way. He was, um, he didn't have any friends. He didn't have any hobbies either. He was incredibly intelligent, much smarter than me, um, especially naturally. It just kind of took him a lot less time to, to understand things than it took me. Um, but he lived a very reclusive life, much like I did after um, our parents split. But he never really made any waves about it. He never really complained about it. And he, you know, was rewarded for it by you know, not being the, the kid that both parents had to figure out or the, the kid who was complicated. And, um, my, my dad, um, I think this is a direct, um, directly descent descends from his own father's behavior. Definitely tried to pit me against my brother, at, at least in terms of our intellect and how smart we were and um would say things like you know you you've got a personality and you're smart and I think you're way smarter than him and would say things that you know on the surface sound nice but I never really viewed my brother as competition I wanted him to be as smart as he could be and I've always known he's smarter than me and he was never somebody I viewed like that. And it always kind of made me uncomfortable that my dad did because I love my brother. Um, I think he's annoying and everything, but he's fantastic. And that sort of pitting us against each other, I don't think worked the way that my dad wanted it to. But when it, when it came to my, my, my father and I getting closer um, and me sort of mirroring my father and learning that that was kind of how you get accepted by him. And that was kind of how he's nice to you. If you take care of him, if you listen to him, if you stroke his ego, if you agree with him about everything, then that sort of bonded him and him and me together more than him and my brother, because my brother 
had no problem with my mother. So for a time it was, it was weird. It was like my hatred or what I thought was hatred for my mom as a teenager bonded my father and I together. Whereas my father resented that my brother didn't have any issue with her. And that was like the glory days of my dad and I being best buddies. And so I fed into that because the more I took issue with my mom and the more I talked shit about her and the more, uh, the, the more we didn't have a relationship, my mother and I, the closer my dad and I felt and the easier it was for my dad to kind of control me. Because if you don't, if you only have one, a relationship with one parent, not that that was really my doing, um, it's a lot easier to become bonded with the larger family when, you know, you're on their side, you agree with them. What messaging this is for a child that the proper way to relate with your dad is to gossip about your mom and talk crap. Um, I mean, it's remarkable that you are as nice as you are. That's the best. I'm glad way. you, I'm glad you think I'm nice. <laughs> I am nice. Thank you. <laughs> so, you know, some of the things that you wrote me, you know, when it comes to you being the scapegoat of the family were that you're pushing yourself, that you're punishing yourself for failing to be loved. And one of the most interesting things here that you wrote me was the family is benefiting uh, from me hating myself. So explain that because this is the point of your life right here where you're probably at the beginning of high school where the mixed messaging has really started to take hold and you're starting to exhibit signs of all this trauma that has gone on and that the programming that you have is going to start bumping into each other as far as what I'm supposed to do, what I've learned, but I'm supposed to do that. Well, I learned I'm supposed to do that. And then it's like, boom, 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 boom. I don't know what to do. These people are going to be mad at me. I lash out. That is kind of how it felt in my head, especially after family dinners, where I felt like I was constantly trying to vie for everybody's love. And it was something that I could never quite hold on to for very long, especially from my dad. It's always a, it's a moving target. But I think both of my parents benefited from me learning to hate myself because they would then take on the parental role the, you know, we know better, you don't know anything. They just destroyed any sense of self-esteem. I don't think I actually developed any self-esteem to be destroyed. Um, I think they, it was a lot easier um, to sort of tell me that I was the problem. I trusted the adults in my life. I trusted that my father was telling me the truth all the time and that he was going to protect me and shield me. It seemed like everybody, you know, trusted him. And, and so I did as well. Um, but without a secure attachment to anyone, to either parent or any nurturing for either parent from either parent, I was deathly afraid that both of them would reject me. I was afraid that the kids at school would reject, reject me. I was afraid that my 
other members of my family would reject me. Um, and so I didn't really create my own personality because my whole existence was tiptoeing. I didn't have any sort of perspective at that age um, to be able to understand that that's what I was doing, that I was trying to appease everybody and trying to get everybody to like me, love me. I didn't realize um, how much pain I was in. Uh, I just, that was just my constant state of, of stress. I, I was trying to learn to exist without my mom being there. I was watching her destroy herself. I was living with that while also really resenting it. Um, I was, like we said, self-managing myself and my life. I was internalizing that I was dramatic and crabby and pissy and bitchy, which is what both parents would call me. Um, and I was being punished for struggling emotionally, never academically, only emotionally. Um, and I never lashed out in any way. I never, you know, drank or did drugs or snuck out or had boyfriends or anything like that. It, it really was just that I, I couldn't handle the feelings that I was feeling. I couldn't handle not being loved by everybody. And I couldn't figure out how to get it, get anyone to care about me. It felt like in a, a real way. Um, and so them encouraging me to be in that constant state of you're a shit person, you're a bitch, you're, you know, the problem here. It made their life easier. So eventually you're in high school and two things happen. One, you start to notice that you are uh, serve some sort of utility in your family. And two, um, socializing with other kids, your age becomes very difficult because you just don't know how. And you also start to see with clearer eyes how your family works as far as information flow and how information about individuals within the family can be weaponized. So uh, walk us through this period of your life. So when I was in middle school, it was kind of rocky because my mom um, had already left but I had friends from elementary school. Uh, by the time I was in high school and everybody else was maturing at a, I guess, normal rate or just was kind of going about their life, um, you know, in a healthier way, uh, I started to not be able to connect with any of the girls my age or the girls I had previously been friends with. And I couldn't understand it. I really, I just, I knew I wasn't ready for the things that high school brought, I, I was very afraid of, of sex and drinking and, and disobeying, uh, our, your parents, like, you know, is so much fun in high school. Like the idea of, you know, getting a bottle of booze and going to someone's basement and making out like that whole thing terrified me in a very, you know, um, unhealthy way, I think. And, 
I, I was so afraid of risking, uh, my parents hating me, uh, finding out that I was doing that stuff or, um, them being ashamed of me, um, that I, I, that fed it even more. So I couldn't really connect with the girls. Um, I wanted a friend so badly. I wanted a best friend so badly. And I think what I started to do was expect unconditional love out of my, my young friends, um, because I wasn't getting that at home or from any of my family. And that is so much what I needed, um, at the time. I didn't realize I was projecting that onto them, but those, that was my standard. And when the girls were mean to me or when they were dismissive of me, it cut me so deeply. Um, and I didn't know how to deal with it. So I would run back to my dad's family and my dad in particular and talk about these quote unquote mean girls. And they would just, them meaning, you know, my dad and my aunt Lena and all of them would just reinforce the fact that those were just friends and you don't need friends. You have family, you've got your cousins that, that are, you know, similarly aged and, and you don't actually need to hang out with people like that. And they're losers and they're not going to go anywhere. And you're going to go and do all these grandiose things. And that was something I struggled with a lot because I believed them. I believed the adults, but it hurt so bad to lose those friends. And all I wanted was to be a normal kid with everybody else. And I just, it felt like they didn't see me or, or I didn't exist. So a big moment happens here as far as clarity goes is when you start to notice how gossip is working within the home. So explain uh, what happens here and, you know, the other big pivotal moment after that is you going to university. Mm -hmm. So explain that. So gossip in my family is how you get along with everybody. They trade it like currency. You bring gossip to the table. Everybody sits around and talks about everybody else. We talk about friends. We talk about close family members. We talk about the family members that are still in the driveway on their way out. We, we talk about, we shit talk everybody. Um, and that's how I think my family stays bonded. They, that is their favorite activity. And, um, I, I'd never realized not even in high school, not until actually I got to college, how cruel that gossiping was and how abnormal it was the things that, that they would say about people that I loved or that we loved and that we supported in our family, the things they would say as soon as they left. Um, it was, it was just normal to me. It was completely normal. Um, and it also fed this idea in my head. this I think very critical voice because when you're, you're spending all your time, socializing with people who are just being nasty about everybody else, you start to, especially me with no self-esteem, I started to internalize that critical voice and it became even harder for me to figure out how I was supposed to behave in the world because how am I supposed to rise above their criticism? How am I supposed to live a life 
where I don't get tripped up, where I don't make mistakes, where I don't screw up. That was my biggest fear was, um, you know, doing the things that my older cousin, Uncle Jerry's kids had had done, um, which were make these, in, in my dad and my Aunt Lena's mind, huge mistakes of picking the wrong partner, picking the wrong um, college major, failing to launch. Um, and I, I just kept, I, I stayed very worried about, well, how do I ensure that I don't end up doing that? Those are, you know, that's, isn't that just life? Um, and it, that was another sort of voice that was clashing with this, uh, with, with everything else internally. I couldn't figure out who I was supposed to be in this family. And yet it's all I thought about all the time. And I, it drove me crazy. And then you eventually get a break from the family for your first time and you go to college and that in itself becomes a terrible experience, but also an eye opening experience. So take us through that. College was supposed to be my big reward after keeping my head down and suffering through high school. Um, I, that's at least how I, I view it now is I, I really couldn't figure out how to be happy in high school. Um, and my dad just assured me, you know, you're going to leave all these losers behind anyways. So you just keep doing what you're doing. You're going to go to this great college. I did end up going to a great college. Um, and my father was so very, very proud of both me and my brother. Um, and I finally got away from the family and realized the way that people treated each other. Like I mentioned, people didn't gossip about each other that cruelly. And the way that I casually said cruel things, I got a lot of reactions from people that were like, shock and awe and kind of like, like it was funny. And, and I didn't realize that that's not how every family talks about each other. And so that was like my first experience finally outside of this cultish bubble where I realized, Oh, like that's, I'm being kind of mean, huh? Or like, Oh, other people are actually kind when they talk about their cousins or stuff like that. And it kind of, it kind of relaxed me a little bit actually, because, you know, my first year in college, it was all about realizing I didn't actually have to be, I didn't have to figure out who I needed to be within the family. I had this experience where this time opportunity where I could figure out who I was at this school. And it was a lot less scary than trying to figure out who the hell I was at the dinner table. Um, I could just be myself and people seemed to like me and I was funny and I was charming and, um, people wanted to be my friend and invited me places. And for the first time I got a little bit of self-esteem and I was, you know, it was all very new for me. Um, and I loved it and it was so much fun. Um, but I, I also struggled, um, a lot, uh, with, relationship still I had one best friend Kelly and she and I were definitely codependent and had a lot of this a lot of shared traumas I think I didn't think we realized it at the time but 
her and I took to each other uh, and we're, we're best friends. And she sort of filled that gap of, oh, she loves me for everything I am. And I'm finally being celebrated and, and everything was going well until uh, we hit our very first relationship hurdle where she hurt me and I didn't know how to cope with it. I had no training. I had no experience. The only thing I'd ever been told was leave her behind and you, you know, you got the family. So screw her, leave her behind. You're going to, you know, be better without her anyways. That was what had been told to me for, you know, a, about a decade at that time. Um, and so I wasn't interested in mending things with her. I just wanted to hurt her. Um, and we did. And then I was without my best friend and it, it unleashed uh, a level of, of depression in me that I, I had always kind of known was there, but I was a very high functioning depressed person in my younger years. Now, all of a sudden away from my family, away from my pets, away from my, um, distractions, away from my home, I couldn't do um, academically or otherwise what I used to be able to do. And it was awful. I, I became suicidal for the first time. I, um, experienced eating disorders for the first time. Um, I experienced self-harm for the first time. Um, it was all very dark and dreary all of a sudden. And it was a huge, huge shame of my life because, I still talked to my father multiple times a day and he knew there was something wrong. He could hear it in my voice, he would say, but he didn't know what to do to help me. And he wouldn't let me come home because um, I'd worked so hard to be there that I just kind of was left there in college to rot <laughs> and fight for myself, really. Um and that was the first time I, I did get to the point where I thought, um, my family is not going to help me here. And they would never agree with me going to therapy. And they would never understand me being depressed or suicidal. They view all of that as character flaws. I know it's not a character flaw. I'm the strongest person I know, right? I've survived all of this to this point. So I know it's not me. So I knew I had to go therapy or otherwise I'd probably be dead. Eventually, were you able to finish the semester or finish school? Yeah, I, I wasn't allowed to leave. So I had to power through and uh, I, I started as a math major. Um, couldn't keep that up with, with suicidal depression. So I switched to film and television, which isn't actually, um, at the time I was deeply ashamed of it because that's who I am. But it was it was actually probably part of what helped me also individuate from my family because I love film and television and I would never have been allowed to major in that if it wasn't a matter of life. <laughs> so after school, you go home and I don't know if you go home during semesters or you go home after school, but your family knows about your struggles here. And I guess take us through how that affected you being at home 
now being uh, and being everything that you always feared? Time kept going by. All my cousins were moving on with their lives. Nobody was at home but me. And I just realized that I, I, there was, there was no way I could figure it out to get everybody to love me and to keep them loving me. I couldn't figure out how to do that and also be alive. And, you know, at the time I was going to therapy twice weekly and seeing a psychiatrist regularly and trying all different medication, um, for the first time. And I just, it was a really difficult time. It didn't seem like anybody was helping me. Nobody asked, nobody, you know, don't ask, don't tell. No, nobody wanted to talk to me about it. Um, and I kept thinking, I thought this was like the family unit that they always told me, stick with your family, stick with your family, because we'll take care of you. We're loyal to each other. We got you. Where are they? Because I need them now. This is the only real time I've ever, you know, really fallen down. You know, when I was younger, I, I was okay enough. I could stay afloat even if I was incredibly unwell. I was externally fine. Now I'm clearly struggling. Where are they? Where is this family that I put all my faith into and spent all my time um, trying to get the approval of? So your family has pretty much disappeared. It creates a bigger crack in you. You're already cracked open. And the depression is hit. You're dealing with things that you haven't dealt with before. You're seeing how the system works. Uh, you're now part of the gossip flow as far as you're being gossiped about in this case. You are the number one thing probably in the family that is being gossiped about because of you know their expectations cracking under those expectations and then the aftermath of of everything so you're really been you're really alone at this point and then eventually someone comes into your dad's life and that person's name is Karen so tell us about Karen 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 and my dad um dated for about a decade before they finally got married. My dad will forever claim he did not want to get married. She gave him an ultimatum. I don't know how much I believe that, but she kind of just hopped into to our life and she didn't really have any baggage. She had no kids. She was independently wealthy from a previous divorce. She had hobbies and her own, you know, part-time job. Um, and she was pleasant. She was fine. Um, she moved in with my dad and I, you know, their marriage helped ease the tension between my dad and I a little bit, because I wasn't expected to take on that role of having to coach him and having to listen to him and having to, um, do all the domestic things. And, you know, uh, Karen was now the actual, you know, the point person for that stuff. I don't think he was using her for the emotional stuff at all. It was now all going to my aunt, but you know, for appearances sake, it was a little bit more relaxed because there was this third party in the picture. And, um, 
my dad seemed to kind of mellow out around her. I think he was less on when he was, when she was around, he um, was just kind of grumpier and angrier, but like, didn't want to fight with anybody. Um, Definitely didn't want to fight with me. She and I kind of picked on him, if anything. And that was so much fun for me. She and my aunt got along but in a very facetious way, I could tell from the get-go that my Aunt Lena hated her. It was like my Aunt Lena gushed over her, like love-bombed the shit out of her and was just like obsessed with everything Karen said and did and brought her into the family with open arms um, because I think that's what Aunt Lena thought my dad wanted. And it's a great way to get close closer to my dad is to be close with his wife. Uh, she and my mom were very close as well. So... It was, but it was like almost like my aunt was mocking her with how much she, um, how much attention she paid her and and how interesting she thought Karen was. Um, Inevitably, uh, my dad cannot be married. Um, They, it, it was very clear to me, especially having been part of this dynamic, that he, like I mentioned, was not sharing any part of his life with Karen. Um, and they weren't living, they weren't coexisting. They were, she was a part of his family, but not vice versa. And she had a big family. I never met them. Um, and I, I was never invited to, and it was just kind of like not talked about. And she was allowed to come to our Sunday dinners and some of our vacations. Um, but eventually Karen, you know, that wasn't enough for her. She wanted a spouse. She wanted a partner. She wanted somebody to share a life with. And my dad was really only interested in sharing a life with Lena at the time, as he always had and always will. And so it drove a wedge between them. Lena and Karen started to hate each other and resent each other, but both pretend like they didn't. Karen stopped coming around and it was hell living with the two of them, the, you know, Karen and my dad. What, what type of abuses were going on toward uh, Karen inside the home? My dad would just stop speaking to her for days on end. And they would just kind of like, I like live together. They didn't sleep in the same room. They didn't talk. They didn't look at each other. They didn't communicate at all. He she would try to get him to interact, try to have a conversation. My dad would just call her crazy and, and ignore her, wouldn't even look at her. Um, and so they would go weeks without speaking. And I was in the middle of it, not knowing what to do. So I would, you know, beg my dad to just kind of like fix it. Just kind of like, what's going on? Like, why, you know, I don't know how to live like this. This is, this is not how people should live. Um, and he would just then blow up at me. He would just, you know, fly off a handle. I don't know anything about marriage and get out of my business and I'm handling it. Um, and he never did. He, she left on her own terms after about nine months of three of us not speaking a word to each other. Um, obviously I was speaking to my dad at the time, but just, you know, coexisting in the house. And, you know, the family, uh, even though, you know, my Aunt Lena was upset that that relationship even happened to begin with because she hated Karen, uh, after all, um, 
the family just kind of rallied around him and, you know, cheered him on and, oh, you're such a strong person. And, you know, look at you, you handled it. You got rid of her. They just kind of, they, they like were so celebratory of him. And I remember being so furious with that because I was the only person in that house who had witnessed how he treated her, how she treated him and what actually transpired within the marriage. And yet aunt Lena was telling this story to everybody that my dad was this like great husband. Karen was crazy and we just had to get rid of her. And that wasn't what happened at all. And so it was the, it was one of the first times that I realized how much gaslighting was going on and, and how much, how much storytelling is required to get embellishing is required to keep my dad's ego where it is within the family and to keep everybody praising him and cherishing him. Um, and it made me crazy because I saw a nasty version of him. I saw a mean, um, cruel man. I saw somebody who didn't deserve a, a spouse and, I didn't see a hero who finally got rid of the devil. And it started to make me think about my own mom and how they spoke about her after she left and what she must have had, have must have endured when she was married to him and how that was spun. And it just kind of kicked off this whole, like, wow, my dad doesn't, does he actually live the life that everybody claims he does? Because I'm seeing a very different version so before we move on here, um, I just want to go into like one little thing about your aunt Lena here, because I think this is really important in this aspect of Karen, which is your dad and your aunt during this time split up, if that is the best way to put it. That and um, that in itself throws the whole family off in a major, major way. Any spouse that comes into your dad's life interrupts this emotional incestual love affair between your dad and his sister. And it is so unhealthy, but it is there and it exists. And it feels like sometimes maybe your dad might be trying to go live a life in some sort of way, but your your aunt has some sort of um, gravitational pull to her with him as well that um, is real, like someone needs to do a real paper on the dynamic um, between those two specifically. I, I have, I remember trying to find any book I could about codependent siblings um, after experiencing this. And I, there really, there's a, a hole in the market there because I couldn't find really anything, but they, so like I said, my, my dad and Karen dated for about a decade. Um, but the marriage was the big thing, the big, like, you know, are, are they or aren't they? And um, my Aunt Lena explicitly told my dad, do not marry her. And my dad did not like being told what to do. And so my dad didn't tell any of us, not his mom, not my brother, not me. 
didn't tell any of us, went off to Florida, got married, came back, acted like nothing happened, and just kind of casually mentioned that he got married. And when my Aunt Lena learned that, she, I, I've never seen her this emotionally distraught in my life. I've never, I've, she's like, I, I mentioned, she's a very loud and boisterous and bubbly person, but I've never seen her so out of her wits. And she, she couldn't get over him getting married without her approval or without believing her that Karen was a snake and she was a bad person. And my dad, I, I just think couldn't get over someone, my aunt Lena thinking that she had that much power in the relationship. I'm not sure really which one's in control. I've never been it. I think it fluctuates between um, my aunt and my dad. But in this situation, my dad really did have all the control because, um, you know, he, he stonewalled my aunt completely. She was hysterical a lot of the times. I mean, she, I had my cousin calling me saying, we need to fix this. I had her calling me and sobbing in public because she had no idea how to fix things with my father, asking, you know, me how to, how to fix this. Meanwhile, I had no idea. I, I've, I've spent my whole life trying to figure him out too. I don't know how to, how to, you know, avoid his wrath. Um, and eventually it, it all came to an end because my aunt got sick. Um, she's okay now, but she, she was um, not well. And that was the, the perfect exit for, for Karen. She was like, all right, well, I'm not going to deal with any of that. I'm going to, you know, I'm done with your family. Uh, and so my dad then gravitated back to Aunt Lena because that's the important person here. That's his family. That's who he's got to keep safe right now. Um, but without that having happened, I have no idea what would have happened within the family because everybody was so sort of distraught because nobody knew what dynamic, like nobody knew what was going on. They had never butted heads like that before in my lifetime. And um, they haven't since. So you've gone through a lot of these eye-opening experiences, this recent one with Karen, uh, how your aunt acted. You really get a really good sense of how your family really is compared to what they have been telling you your whole entire life. But there's one thing in your life that always has been missing, which is someone to believe in you and truly believe in you and have your back. And... You mentioned already that you started to see a therapist, but eventually that therapist becomes the number one ally in your life, and it begins the process of autonomy um, and the goal of autonomy. So take us through this process or take us through this part of your life. So after this this marriage had had ended and I was in therapy, um, with, um, the same person for a while. It, I had never talked about my family unit, meaning my dad's family in therapy before I had had a couple of previous therapists and they all wanted to focus on the mother wound. I think it was, I don't think that that was wrong, but we, we did a lot of work, you know, going through my relationship with my mother and what happened there. I think it's probably, 
the more obvious um, uh oh in my life, um, you know, that needs to be talked about. But this was the first therapist who ever mentioned that uh, it sounds like my family is a pretty harsh place to be. She was the first person who ever talked about my family instead of talking about it like everybody else had, like, oh, I wish I had that. And you guys sound so close. And it's this big, happy Italian family. And you're so joyous instead of framing it and like, you know, they, they, you guys all kept each other safe after that tragedy of your mom leaving. And I'm talking about it like that. She was the first therapist to kind of just say, frankly, it sounds like a really hard family to grow up in. And that kind of gave me for the first time, the permission from somebody else to be like, yeah, it actually was a very hard time for me. Um, and it still is. And I still don't really have the answers. So she was, she was instrumental in not only opening that door and allowing me to explore my dad in therapy, but also helping me get into law school. And I didn't involve him in the process. I, I just, but I just needed, I needed to get out and I needed to, to start um, a path that was my own, even if it was wrong, even if it was the wrong school, if it was the wrong time, whatever. I just needed to do something. I had spent four years rotting in my dad's den and not doing anything in my life other than therapy and, and feeling bad. Uh, and I felt like the biggest loser on earth. So I figured I'll, I will go wherever uh, I get the most money. Um, I did get a little bit of a scholarship and I will go wherever it takes, you know, whoever takes me, I don't care about any of that, that sort of surface um, ranking stuff. So, you know, you are starting to really get loose at this point as far as the hold goes. And then not that your dad ramps things up completely, but you start to notice as far as, you know, you still have these mixed messages going on and there's still a struggle going on within you. And then you start to notice when there's an incident with your dog of how much he really doesn't care at all. My family pets have always been hugely important to me. Um, growing up, I didn't have many friends or a lot of people who were comforting me and the animals always did. Um, and so I'm very, very fond of all, you know, all my pets growing up. And, um, when I was in college, um, we had two dogs, um, one of which was a very large, very beautiful um, St. Bernard mix. She was also very temperamental, uh, had behavioral issues. When I moved back home, I spent a solid two years trying to train her to be less uh, reactive because she was, you know, in my mind, she was she wasn't able to be around other dogs. She wasn't able to be around other people. And I wanted her to be happy. I wanted her to be calm. I wanted her, you know, to live a good life. And so I worked with her every single day on training her 
and her and I were best buddies. And, you know, I had another dog at the time too. And him, he was easy peasy, very simple temperament, um, classic dog temperament. And, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in that, you know, after college and before going to law school in my dad's den, laying on the floor, uh, cycling through different medications, you know, just in a lot of pain, but unable to pick myself up. And those dogs sat with me every minute of every day. They napped with me. They, they, they structured my day. I went out with, you know, took them out, took them to the vet, took them to the park, took them on walks. Those, that was the only thing in my life at the time. Um, and they were very, very loyal friends. And I had an apartment downtown in the city where my school was so that I could do overnights there. Um, but I didn't live there because I couldn't be away from my dogs. And this temperamental dog, the one that had a lot of the issues, we call her Penny. Uh, she had a seizure disorder. She would have major seizures. Um, and she would come get me if I was home, she'd come get me every time because she could sense them coming on. And I was her comfort person and we would go, we'd sit outside, um, and she would stumble around and it was, you know, and then she'd snap back into it and she was on medication for this. It, you know, my dad being a very wealthy person was no problem medicating this gigantic dog. Uh, she needed to be on everyday meds. Um, my dad and I started to fight a lot, um, at, you know, when I was in law school, because I knew that he was not giving her enough attention and I knew he was withholding her pills for some reason. Um, he just would decide to, to, to have her skip doses, not give her any, give her half, whatever. And we used, this is one thing that I really fought with him about. Uh, we fought really nasty about this because you know i would always say to him why would you know the vet told you she's got to be on these pills she doesn't need to be tapered off of them she's going to be on them the rest of her life it's not a money issue why are you doing this to her she would you know she'd have more and more seizures and you know he being the narcissist he is knew better than everybody everybody blew smoke up his ass. Like he's the best dog trainer and he's the best dog owner. And he's always oh, just so fantastic. And, you know, he, I just watched him mistreat this dog and I, it broke my heart. And one weekend when I was home, um, she had a cluster of seizures and she never woke up and she was only five years old. We rushed her to the emergency vet and I sat next to my dad in the vet's office and I was furious. I knew it was because he had stopped giving her her pills. And this is exactly what, what, you know, would happen. And the vet at the time, the emergency vet looked, looked at us and, and asked, well, why did you stop giving her her, her pills? And I remember my dad looking at me like, like a, like a little boy, like with his, like wanting me to answer for him. And I just wouldn't, I just sat there, didn't say anything. He didn't say anything, you know, then 
at the time too, I had this other dog and, you know, a door had been left open and trying to get, you know, Penny to the emergency vet. So my cousin called and said, you know, Hey, I saw your dog walking around outside. And so I immediately spring up and I'm like, you know, give me the keys to the car. I got to get home. My dog is wandering around. It was like, it was like I had told my dad, I don't ever want to see you again. He was so like scared to be left there at the vet with his dog alone and so disgusted that I would abandon him to go get my dog that was wandering the neighborhood. It was like he had done this horrible thing and and yet he was still looking at me like he needed more from me. He now needed me to explain, you know, what he had done for him. He needed me to be there with him. And I was fucking furious. Um, and it, the whole thing just destroyed me. I went back to my apartment for school and I called the vet because I wanted my dog's collar because she had been wearing her, her collar. And um, they couldn't find it. And so I was, you know, call, you know, and it is, I just was, I need this collar. This is the only thing I have left of her. You know, why didn't my dad take it? Um, oh, I should back up. Uh, she never woke up from the seizures and she needed to be put to sleep. And I, I was at school. It was a Monday. I was at, I was downtown at school. And I was on the phone with my dad, you know, in between classes or whenever. And I, I kept saying to him, you know, you're going to be there, right? Like, you're going to be there with her. You're going to go. And he, yep, I'm going to, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. And I'm like, you know, if you can't go, tell me I'll be on the next train. It takes me 40 minutes. I will come and be with her if you can't go. And I was earnest about it. I, I, you know, I wasn't, I truly was begging him. Like, if you, if you can't go please tell me, you know, tell me now. Cause I will be there. No, no, I'm going to go. I'll be there. And I even called my aunt Lena and I begged her. I said, please, if he is not going to go, you got to tell my uncle, her, her husband, I, you got to ask him to go. Somebody's got to be there. And she even said, you know, no, he's going to go. He's going to go. It'll be fine. So anyways, I'm trying to locate this collar. It's the only thing I have left of the dog. And, um, I get on the phone with the vet and she's like, don't worry. We found the collar. Um, by the way, I just wanted to let you know, you know, she, she wasn't alone when she went, you know, we, we made sure to have a vet in there with her. And I said, what do you mean? Like, was it my dad there? And they were like, no, she was by herself. You know, nobody was here. And I, I, I lost it. It, I don't think I've ever, been that angry in my whole life I called my dad the next morning I screamed at him like I've never screamed at anybody nor do I hope I ever scream at anybody like that again I was disgusted I was furious I couldn't believe he would do that it's not not a judgment on how people leave their pets you know that's that's your decision but the fact that I begged him to let me know if he wasn't going to go so that I could be there so that anybody, my uncle could be there with her. So she wouldn't be alone. So she could smell somebody. I just couldn't, I still can't. 
make sense of why he um, would make that decision, not only for himself, but for me. Um, and I just, I lost it. And, you know, like every fight with him, it then became about my behavior and how I was disrespectful and how he would never speak to his father like that. And I was a horrible, disgusting person. And I said terrible things. I called him every name in the book. I called him a coward because he is. I called him a liar because he is. I saw him for exactly who he was. And I told him. And then it became the issue wasn't me being mad at him the issue was now I had said things to him that he was going to hold over me for the rest of my life and that's what happened he he then was furious with me and you know he revert he reversed it it just was maddening and the, the problem at that time was he was paying for law school he was paying for the apartment and he was picking me up from the train station and so I couldn't I wasn't allowed to stay mad at him. I was, but I wasn't allowed to hate him because I still financially depended on him and and he knew it and everybody knew it, but you know, that's how he ensures that his relationships stay intact. So I had to I had to beg for his forgiveness and um our relationship has never been the same since then. It just got things just got worse. Um, because there was a lot of gaslighting after that, where, you know, my aunt Lena would start telling the story differently. She would start telling all sorts of stories differently to frame my dad as this hero. And I started to pick up on that a little bit more and started to realize when stories were changing and, and everybody just kind of like nodded in agreement. And, and I was the only one who was like, wait a second, you know, that's not how it happened. And that's not, you what that's you know, you made that up in my head. I would, you know, never say anything like that out loud, but I started to realize that this whole family was existing to prop him up and to protect him. And with something as explicit as what happened with Penny, I couldn't believe that they rallied around him. And I couldn't believe that I was the asshole. <laughs> and it made me realize I'm, I'm never not going to be. Um, and I can't trust my dad. He is a coward and he is a liar and he is a bully. And so long as I am a part of that family and I feel those things about him, I'm going to be the enemy. So then eventually the pandemic hits and things go sideways for a lot of people during the pandemic. Uh, what happened uh, with you and your dad during this time? So because I was in law school at the time, um, I you know lived at home um, and I was doing everything from our basement because um, it just seemed to be the quietest and easiest place to be. And I was in classes all day, um, but it was it was not fun. Uh, not being able to be around my people and to be out of the house and, you know, out from the eye of 
Aunt Lena next door who's watching and reporting everything. It was just a very suffocating time. Um, my, my dad really was upset with me that I did not want to attend family gatherings. I, you know, kind of used it as a, as I'm sure a lot of people did as a great excuse to not have to go to every Sunday dinner and not have to go to every holiday because, you know, legitimately I, I was afraid. I didn't every, I think a lot of people were, and I took my health seriously and I didn't want to get sick. I had a, you know, a degree to get, and I, I just, didn't want to be around big groups of people, especially not that big group of people who I know were not taking things um, as seriously as I would have wanted if I were to, you know, spend time around them. And that was like, that was like, uh, like a spitting in my dad's face. He, he was furious that I didn't want to be around the family, that I would prioritize my own health and my own needs above that of the family because the family needs to see me and needs me to be there to show you know show face and and you know basically prove to everybody that there's nothing dysfunctional going on in uh, my dad's house and his relationships and I just wouldn't do that for him I I finally prioritized myself and um he absolutely lost his mind we did not speak uh you know which is very typical of him i had gone through periods of not speaking to him for months at a time before weeks or months this was about six months of us not speaking to each other um which i know he's excellent at because i watched him do it with karen for about nine months um and you know he was, he had the support of aunt Lena and Graham and everybody telling him that I was in the wrong. And so, you know, one day he just got really, really riled up and came downstairs and absolutely flipped the lid, kicked me out, uh, called me pathetic, blamed me for Karen leaving, uh, used my complicated relationship with my mother and, and her mother, Nana, to prove that I was the one with all the relationship issues and I must be in the wrong. And why aren't I texting and calling my cousins? You know, why am I, why am I the way I am, basically? And how dare I? I'm an entitled bitch. Uh, he's not going to pay for my law school anymore. Um, I had to, you know, frantically try to figure out, well, how do I take out loans for the first time? Um, and he just, he just used everything, every card he could that he had been collecting over the years to just scare me into showing up for the family. And it, it didn't work. Uh, I was not okay at the time. I was very unwell. It was a horrible situation living with him, even though we were on different floors of the house. My hair fell out. I lost way too much weight. I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. I was having um, really severe panic attacks for the first time where I would just think, you know, I, I'd never experienced it that acutely where all of a sudden I would just be in a rage. Um, and I, I was still in therapy at the time and I was still in touch with my law school friends, but it was just not 
an okay situation living in that basement, knowing that that man thought all those nasty things about me and said them to me. Um, and that nobody would believe that he said those things to me. So after your dad says that he wants you out, uh, you two become, I guess, cordial again and start talking here and there, uh, get back to somewhat normality where then you agree that you'll be uh, leaving the home and that within that promises uh, get made and with someone who was in your shoes at this time and the job that you had, you needed to get a a co-signer on your uh, lease. So what happens from there? I did it all by myself. I was super proud. Got to the point where it was like, okay, we're going to sign this lease. Dad, are you on board? And I uh, got a call from him the, the day before they wanted the lease back. And he just, he had like a, a breakdown um, where he just got incredibly angry um, and started talking out of both sides of his mouth about how um, I, that, you know, he had agreed to finance this. He had provided the landlord with all of his, you know, financial proof. Cause I needed a co-signer. The job I had at the time was not, did not make enough. Um, and my dad just basically made up, tried to make up all these excuses as to why this house wasn't going to work and why the timing was bad, why the location was bad, why everything was bad after I had figured it all out. And he just pulled the rug out from under me. And that was that, that, that was, he just, I was that close to leaving and to having a a little bit more independence, even though it still would have been tethered to him. um, He wouldn't do it. Uh, And so I eventually got a different job. I had to scramble to get a different job, to get a higher paying job. I used every friend I could to help me how to help take me and, 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 you know, view houses with me and talk about neighborhoods and help me move and do all of that. I, it was all, all my law school friends and, uh, finally was able to do it myself. And at that point it was very clear. I didn't need him to love me. Uh, I, I think that became the clearest after the bar uh, after I passed, um, and I realized how quickly that big prideful moment sort of went away as soon as he, as soon as I did something that wasn't favorable, uh, in his eyes. And I, I think I just finally at that point was exhausted by the chase, the whole, you know, what do I, you know, I want my dad to be proud of me and what do I got to do to keep him, you know, happy or just have him be proud. That's his whole, that's his whole shtick is he wants to control you, um, by shaming you into being who he thinks you should be. Um, he wants to, to be the most prideful person, uh, of you and brag about you and, put you on a pedestal to everybody, his friends and his family. Um, So you got to behave in a way that he decides. 
except he's so flippant, especially with me, what makes him happy and what destroys him. Um, that I, I just remember after the bar, because it's such a grueling process, being absolutely emotionally exhausted and realizing, oh my God, this man really still thinks that I live and die, that my, the sun, the sun rises and sets on his approval. And I, I really just don't need it anymore. I did this huge thing without him. Um, and that I think is where the contempt from him, or I, I don't know if it's contempt or if it's just apathy or whatever it is towards me that he doesn't have towards my brother or anybody else. I think that's where it comes in is I, I don't care what he thinks of me. And I don't, I don't want to work hard to earn his love because I I've lived a long time really without it. Um, and so I don't need it. So how does it all end? You're a movie fan? Huge movie fan. How does it end, Truman? <laughs> um, I wish I had a happier ending. Um, you know, my, my dog and I moved out and... I have I have noticed it's a lot easier to have a relationship with my dad when um, I'm not living with him. Um, and that's so that's been fine. But, you know, things are still really hard for me. Um, dating is really hard for me. Uh, relationships are really hard for me not having relationships is really hard for me i i feel very behind i feel very um like i'm starting the race very late and um i will say though i, I am very proud of myself um i i, I have a very well-developed sense of intuition when it comes to um you know figuring out figuring out what people bring to the table and what people bring to a relationship. I think I have a good sense of, uh Oh, this is a red flag or, Oh, that's why they're attracted to me. I'm, you know, I, I've, I've dated a couple of uh, people who I would not label as narcissists, but that I can recognize I probably attract because I was raised by a narcissist. So I was raised to be the perfect little codependent. Um, so I think I'm a, I'm a target there. So I could be very cognizant of that. Um, but I, I, I'm proud of the work I've done in my relationships. That's been the last, probably the last year of my life has been taking accountability for, um, my, my own emotional responses to friendships and things that happen in friendships and relationships and just realizing that, yeah, all this bad stuff happened and I deserve better. And I didn't deserve to be, to lose out on that much of my life um, or for anything to be this hard, but it's up to me now moving forward, um, figure out how to regulate my nervous system in a way that I, I can have happy, you know, content relationships. Uh, I have a couple of really great friends, which I is everything to me. 
Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm okay. Do you want to have a family yourself? Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) No marriage, no kids. Get out of here. I like dogs. My dog, Tony and I are our own little family. So that's enough for me. Cue the Sopranos music. <laughs> Cut to black. Do you even know what would make you happy or, or what you want? Or are you just, yeah. just kind of, or what, no. would that, what is that? I am very good at, I know my, um, what I'm doing right now is being very aware of my boundaries and if people respect them or not. I have gotten to a point where I've stopped gaslighting myself into thinking that having needs is bad. Uh, and having boundaries is abnormal because I grew up in a family where having both of those things was absolutely a no-no. Uh, so I, I do a lot of practice in relationships. Dating is a great place for it. Um, trying, seeing how people react to very normal, very healthy boundaries. And based on how people react to those, um, you know, taking stock of, whether or not you want to continue relationships with people and also just being a lot kinder to myself about it and, and trusting myself that I, I, I can trust myself to read people. And I, I, I think growing up in the family I did, I had to become, I was obsessed with trying to figure out why people were the way they were uh, because I couldn't figure out who to be, how to be that, who I should change into. And so I have an overdeveloped, probably overactive sense of, of sort of reading people and it can definitely go too far, but it's very helpful for weeding out people who just really are not that I really shouldn't spend my time with. And I, I am very, I'm very proud of that too. And everyone who's listening as I mentioned earlier, that you sent me this novella. <laughs> and we discussed before we began if you should just read the novella. And I said, no. But there were a lot of good lines in that novella that you sent me. <laughs> and we didn't really get to a lot of them today because you're going off of memory to keep a flow going because it's different than when you read it. And I'm going to put a lot of those on our Instagram account for people to read it because some of those lines that you wrote were gold. They Thank re- you. They really were. They were, you got to the heart of things in a very efficient man- manner. Um, and maybe I'll make a t-shirt out of them. And I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you 10%. You don't but, need to give me 10%. I just want a t-shirt. <laughs> but you're really good. You're a good writer. Thank and, you. um, you know, telling your story today, telling, you know, this was not an easy story to tell, which is why we recorded once and, and came back here to try and figure out a structure and, um, cause it's just so much and we didn't, cover a lot of it your yours could have been 10 hours long but you really did a good job 
explaining your family, explaining the structure, explaining the depths in which you were and the despair. Um, you know, you were gaslit as a very young child. You lived in a twilight zone for a very long time. When I brought up the Truman Show, right there, I mean, he lived in a world that didn't exist. Um, and you did too, for a very long time. And sometimes when you're at your worst, like you were when you started battling depression, and people say that you crack, but within those cracks, light came in, and you started to see reality and what was there. The reality was always trying to fight its way through. It was there, and you made it here, and your life's not going to be easy, you know? You were socialized in a way with so many mixed messages. I stated that earlier. There were so many mixed messages going on. There could have been like four conflicting messages within one message. And that can break anyone. So when the depression did hit, or when it showed, even though you probably were depressed for a long time, um, that was inevitable. And creating new pathways of how to communicate what anger looks like, what healthy anger looks like, how to actually have a healthy communication, nonviolent communication. You have to learn everything from the bottom up again. And having a friend is scary for you. Uh, when you're starting out, having a relationship has to be deathly afraid because everyone, as you said, is so far ahead of you who's at your age. Right. I tell people I've never had a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend before and they they just don't believe me. And I, I don't know why anybody would make that up. I, it's embarrassing to share. I don't know why anybody would, but it it truly, it, it leaves me feeling like they're it's too it's I'm too far gone. Um, but you know, like I said, I I've got some friends now and that that's enough for now. I'll figure I'll figure out the relationship stuff. Yeah, I, I, well I'm prou- <laughs> I'm proud of you that you you're out of there. You're out from underneath the thumb. And that was the biggest thing for you to be able to breathe and start this process. And it really is amazing that you're here, you're functional, or at least showing a little bit, you know, functional. That was loaded. Um, (laughs) But you know what I mean? You are able to function in society while you're learning how to um, rewire yourself so you can be as functional as you'll ever be. And that's why I asked, like, did you ever have a desire? Do you have a desire to be, have a family? My big thing is I've had to reparent myself for the last, well, intensively for probably the last few years, but I've had to parent myself since I was 10 and I am still struggling with that. So the idea of parenting somebody else, even a partner who is might be you know more emotionally needy, 
or immature or an actual child, it sounds like the worst thing in the world to me because I am, I am just so exhausted from doing it for myself. I, I might be decent at it. I think I would be a good parent. I I'm a good parent to Tony, but it's not something that I'm, I want to jump into because I, I don't think I, uh, I don't think I can do it, want to do it for anybody else. It's enough to have to do it for yourself. Well, I'm really happy that you came on our show today. And I'm happy that you had me. Thank you very much. I, I sent this story to you back in, what was it? Was it last October or no? You disappeared and then you came back. It was last October I sent it to you. It's been almost a year. Yeah, so. you disappeared. We were supposed to record, and then you came back. And then we recorded, and then we re-recorded. But we did it. You did it. Now you can't I, get rid of me. I felt like we were a team today. <laughs> I really felt like we were a good team. We were. We were a great team. So thank you once again for, for being here. And if you want to be a guest on our show like Dasha was today please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. Please read all of the instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Submit Form. Press the Submit button and please send it to us in the format that we asked for in the Guest Form notes that are there. Also at our website, we have a support group, everyone. So if you need support, click on our support group button. It takes you to our very own safe social network where we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoon, and Saturday night. We have forum boards for you to post and for our support group members to answer you and validate you and comfort you. Also on there, we have ad-free episodes and episodes that never made it to air. So please do join our support group today. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. So if you need articles or resources to help you make sense of what you're going through, go to DomesticShelters.org. If you need to find a website or phone numbers for domestic violence agencies or shelters, please do go to DomesticShelters.org. It's a wonderful organization. It's free. And that is at DomesticShelters.org. And now that is it for today's episode. I want to thank Dasha once again for being our guest. And from Dasha and myself, we hope you have a good night. <laughs>